thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at the age of 92 about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci, here to welcome you to our January True Tales Live show, our first for 2020. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I still have to, I still pause every time I say that. Could that be right? It's right. Um, we are coming to you from Portsmouth Public Media TV, Channel 98 in New Hampshire. Thanks so much to everyone watching and listening, and a special thanks to our in-studio audience. Give yourselves a hand from, for coming. Yay, we love you. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to share their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity, and help us bridge differences to build understanding and respect. While we do encourage the development of storytelling skills, we have monthly workshops and other assistance we provide to tellers. This is not a competition. We won't have any ranking or scoring or judging tonight. Our belief is that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us, and that's the reason that we're here. The theme for tonight's show is Good accidents. <laughs> we'll hear from five tellers. We have John Tilly, Tom Osberg, Irene Bouchine, Tim Bassett, and Debbie Kane. They each have 10 minutes to tell their story to us, and each will be introduced by our MC, Pat Spaulding. Following the storytelling, there will be an interview segment in which um, our own David Frainer will sit down with John Tilly and a, a subject of his story. Um, so we look forward to that too. But first, the stories. So let's welcome up Pat to introduce our first teller to you. Come on up, Pat. Hello, everyone. Glad you came. First up, we have John Tilly. He is an atypical Texan who doesn't eat steak. <laughs> doesn't own a gun, and sure as hell does not vote Republican. <laughs> His words, not mine. <laughs> Although the sympathy is definitely there. <laughs> that may explain some of the reasons why he now calls two addresses home, Irving, Texas, and Rye, New Hampshire. After working for 41 years, including 32 years as an attorney, John retired and found his new home in Rye. He and his wife, Wanda, have three children, and six grandchildren, all of whom are still based in Texas or other parts of the country, unfortunately. We need to bring them here. John and Wanda moved to the seacoast New Hampshire five years ago, and the story he's about to tell us will describe in more detail exactly why. Its title is Out of Sight. Come on up, John. Thank you, Pat. It's always good to be here. In September 1978, I needed a new direction. Disillusioned by a recent divorce, I swerved and entered law school at the University of Houston. As an aside, my very first professor there was Elizabeth Warren, but this story is not about her. 
It is, however, about a woman that I did meet that fall. My ex-wife had chosen a preschool for our three-year-old son, Daniel. And as it turns out, his new teacher was my age, also recently divorced, and, well, just drop-dead gorgeous. To me, she was out of sight. What I learned was that she had returned to Texas after living for three years in Portsmouth, where her ex flew tankers at Pease. Now, she insists that this is an exaggeration, but my memory of our first conversation at that preschool, she said, hi, my name is Wanda, and someday I'm moving back to New Hampshire. Well, I had traveled pitifully little by that point in my life, and I had a vague notion where New Hampshire was. But I looked into those blue eyes, and I smiled and thought to myself, okay, me too. <laughs> we met for coffee occasionally on campus, where she too was a student at the University of Houston, finishing up her sociology degree, that she had started a few years earlier at the University of New Hampshire. We got along well, we had things in common, and we began dating more and more. And things went along without too many bumps. Well, her six-year-old daughter, Heather, did make it very plain that she preferred a previous boyfriend, whom she referred to as Mr. Muscles, over me. But again, that, that dissipated, and by the spring of 1979, Wanda and I were an exclusive couple, which prompted me one sunny, blue-skied afternoon while we were on a walk to casually suggest maybe we should consider getting married. She hesitated and looked at me and said, I'll think about it. By the end of the spring semester, we were both anxious to get out of Houston, and we began talking about a trip together. And after much discussion, we agreed on San Francisco. Now, she had been there once before briefly, but as I alluded, I had traveled almost nowhere, and certainly not as anywhere as mysterious as San Francisco, California. So at age 27, for the second time in my life, I boarded a jet plane and we flew west. My best friend from sixth grade now lived in San Francisco. I hadn't seen Tommy for almost 10 years since high school graduation, but I wrote him and told him that we were coming to San Francisco and could he find us a fun place to stay. He picked us up at the airport, and he drove us to Pacific Heights to a bed and breakfast called The Mansion. Now, did he find us a good place to stay? He did a great job. The Mansion was the love child of an eccentric advertising executive. He had turned an 1890s Victorian into a picture book B&B. The maids wore outfits straight out of upstairs, downstairs. On our second night there, he brought in the pianist from the San Francisco S Symphony who played the entire Rhapsody in Blue 
on a grand Steinway in the parlor. In the entryway was a table with a five-layer cake ready to be sliced by any guest. Full carafes of wine were sent to your room upon request, gratis. Breakfast, whether in the parlor or in your room, consisted of gourmet coffee, fresh squeezed orange juice, a buttery croissant, and a blue hard-boiled egg for the gentleman and a pink hard-boiled egg for the lady. And what was the nightly cost of this experience? $69. You can see how a young couple could have thought that they had found the end of the rainbow. And Tommy toured, was happily toured us around his city. We walked along the cliffs on the Pacific Ocean and through the ruins of the Sutro Baths. We sipped hot tea at the Japanese gardens at Golden Gate Park. We rode the cable car and we drank Irish coffee at the Buena Vista. We ordered dim sum at Ch in Chinatown and pretended to savor dishes that we had no idea what they were. And trying to get as much California experience as we could, we rented a car and drove to Yosemite National Park. It was May and the waterfalls were at their fullest from the, from the snow melt. We stood in the mist of Bridal Veil Falls, not caring at all that our hair was wet and our clothes were clinging to us. We were on a magical trip and nothing could go wrong. After absorbing as much natural beauty from Yosemite that we could, we drove back to San Francisco for our last two nights in the city. Tommy met up with us and we had dinner at an upscale seafood restaurant. Being our last night in town, we dressed well. Wanda wore an emerald green top with a titillating plunging neckline and a flowered skirt with lace around the bottom border. After dinner, we walked through the city and at a street corner, we were serenaded by a homeless young man with a rousing version of House of the Rising Sun. It was getting late, but Tommy said he wanted to take us one more place, his favorite place, to see San Francisco at night. So we drove up the very steep and winding road to Coit Tower. Now, as the story goes, Coit Tower is a memorial to a firefighter from his loving wife. The tower is itself is in the shape of a fire hose nozzle, although many people see a much more phallic symbolism. <laughs> In any event, Mr. Coit must have been a hell of a guy at putting out a fire. But the grounds of, 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 of Coit Tower itself sits on one of the taller hills uh, in San Francisco. And when we reached the summit, we were just in wonder at the city lights all below us, the stars above us, and the inky San Francisco Bay in the distance.
The tower grounds are surrounded by a circular walkway, which in turn is surrounded by cedar bushes that are growing on the steep hill all the way down. So we decided to climb up on the walkway and walk around to see as much of the city lights as we could. And it was beautiful. The city below was sparkled like a convention of fireflies. It was midnight and we had the place all to ourselves. We thought we were on top of the world. So we decided to walk on, the, on this circular walkway and we were looking again all around the stars, the city lights below, the darkness of the bay. And I realized that Wanda was walking in a straight line with her head up, just taking in all of the wonders of the night. She walked in a straight line, but the walkway gently curved left. Tommy was walking in front, Wanda was walking in the middle, and I was behind her. And I watched as her right foot took a step forward and completely missed the walkway. As in slow motion, her body gently swiveled to the right, and she cleanly fell over the edge of the walkway into the darkness. She was gone, out of sight. The hill is very steep and again covered in these bushes. And I stood there on the edge looking down into the darkness and didn't see anything. Tommy appeared at my side. We both looked down. There was no sound. He said, where is she? And I pointed and said, down there. We both stood there with our hands on our knees looking over the edge into the abyss. And then out of the bushes, a sandaled foot appeared and then an ankle and a calf in shredded pantyhose. <laughs> and then a muffled voice, grab my leg. <laughs> Tommy and I both grabbed her leg and hoisted her feet first up out of the bushes, the flowered skirt up under her neck. And we set her upright and she was intact. <laughs> The bushes were so thick that when she fell into them, they pinned her up against the concrete retaining wall. The only casualty were the pantyhose and, the, and about half of the lace ripped away from the flowered skirt. That was our honeymoon. Three years later, Wanda declared that she had thought about it sufficiently and she began planning a simple wedding. 40 years and six grandchildren later, she is still out of sight to me. But not to you, she's right there. So say hello after the show. Uh, and as for that flowered skirt, she still has it.
Thanks, John. As Valentine's Day approaches, not one of my favorite holidays, but I always like a romantic story. Next up, John, Tom Ostberg. Grew up in New Jersey. Always dreamed of climbing in the Great White Mountains and wandering into the far off woods. A map of the whites that was pinned to his wall fed his daydreams until finally he moved to New Hampshire to be closer to the mountains. Although Tom made his living as a software developer, developer her, his real occupation has always been the art and study of getting lost, <laughs> both in his dreams and in the woods. He canoes and camps every chance he gets. He has hiked the Appalachian Trail and loves hearing and telling adventure stories. It never fails to amaze Tom how, when one story ends, it brings to mind another and another. Each one a vivid reminder that life is full of love, beauty, adventure, and sometimes misadventure. The title of Tom's story is Radiant Lake. Come on up, Tom. Thank you. So it was, <clears throat> it was early in the summer, long, long time ago, uh, me and my wife decided we wanted to take our little family, my, my little daughter, Heather, with her pigtails, and my son, who was very energetic, on a wilderness canoe trip to let them experience the wonder and beauty we had had. We heard about a place called Radiant Lake. You could smell the tall pine trees. You could hear the lap of the water, the, the beaches up against the campsites, the hand-carved logs that were for benches around the ring, the fire ring. I really wanted to go. I'd never been there. And, I, and it was just to be out there for a whole week, to be able to hear the loons at night, watch the sparks go up into the, into the stars, and, and, see, and hear the owls call at night. And it was only a seven-hour drive, and then an hour on gravel road, and then, and then a dirt-rutted road between swamps and little streams. We finally got there and took the huge green monster canoe and put it in the water and the little yellow canoe and it popped open the trunk of the van and I looked inside and a little voice in the back of my head worried about how much stuff we had packed. We really wanted the kids to have a good experience. So I took out the canoeing gear like, you know, the paddles and the, and the life jackets and the seat cushions and the and the camping gear, like the tent and the sleeping bags and the pads, and, and the cooking gear, like the frying pans and the pots and the, and the stoves, and of course the gear for having fun, you know, like the screen house and the chairs and the lanterns and the tables. <laughs> and tied it all in the canoe. We paddled across our fertile lake to a small dirt trail to another lake, because Radiant Lake was eight lakes into the wilderness. <laughs> And every portage trail between the lakes, we had to hike back and forth three times with all the gear. So I took out the canoeing gear and the camping gear and the cooking gear and all the gear for fun, like, you know, the screenhouse, the chairs and the board games and the lanterns. And 
I heard this little voice of my daughter, and I looked down, and she said, Daddy, can I help? In my mind's eye, I'll never forget her as a little girl. And, and I said, no, it's okay. Why don't you walk across with your brother and see the next lake? And I carried the canoeing gear and the camping gear and the cooking gear and the gear for fun, like, you know, the, the screenhouse, the board games, the chairs and the lanterns across to the next lake and put it all back in and paddled across the lake to another portage where I took out the, the camping gear and the cooking gear and the canoeing gear and all the gear for fun, you know, like the, the screenhouse, the board games, the chairs and the lanterns. And this went on all day and that night I turned to my wife and I said, you think they're having fun yet? And she said, my back hurts, which wasn't good because we were only halfway there. So the next day I, I took the canoeing gear and the camping gear and the cooking gear and the gear for fun, you know, like the screenhouse board games, chairs and lanterns and put them all in the canoe. And we paddled across where I took out the canoeing gear and the camping gear and the cooking gear and all the gear for fun, you know, like the screenhouse board games, lanterns and chairs. And this time I wanted to, to shorten the trip, so I put on a, a backpack and put the huge monster canoe on my shoulders. And I'm walking across the trail, and it seemed to be taking forever. And, and you can only see about three feet when your head's inside a canoe. And, <laughs> and then it starts going downhill. And so I'm picking up speed with the weight. And, and then I start just about running to keep up with the weight. And, and suddenly the trail turned, and it slammed into an oak tree, knocked it off my shoulders, down on my head, and whap, I was driven to the ground. And I whack, whack, rolled down the hill inside the canoe, which must have been an awful loud, because when I sat up and looked up at my little family at the top of the hill, <laughs> surrounded by stars, they looked worried. But there was no blood, so I said, it's probably okay just getting a headache. And that night I was really getting a headache, a migraine, and, and setting up camp was tough with a migraine, and I took all sorts of Advil and codeine and was wandering around and finally thinking I could settle in for the night. Snap, I realized I hadn't hung up the bear bag. A bear bag is where you put all your food in it and toothpaste and anything that'll attract bears. You hang it at least 10 feet high on a branch, 10 feet from the trunk of the tree, so that bears won't get it. Well, I'm wandering around looking for a tall tree with a big branch, and I'm having trouble finding one, and I have a headache, and finally in the darkness I found a tree which really wasn't high enough, but it had a great big branch that hung out over a cliff, over the black water of Clamshell Lake, which I figured no bear would ever go out on that. So I got myself ready to put the food bag up, and I, I bent over to pick up the rope, and bang, flash, I couldn't see. The headache was so bad. And, and I'm standing there getting myself together, and I, I have a rope. What do I have to do? I have to tie a rock to it to throw it over. And I look down, and I see a big rock, so I bend over, and bang, flash, the pain. And, I can't see, it was so bad. And so then I'm trying to think, what was I doing? I have a rope, I've tied the rock to it to throw over the branch 
oh, I have to tie off the end of the rope. So I bent over and bang, flash, I couldn't see it. And I'm trying to think, what was I doing? I had the rope with a rock on it and I looked down and cold sweat ran down my back. The rope with the rock I was gonna throw over the branch, over the cliff, over the black waters of Clamshell Lake, was tied to my ankle. <laughs> Later that night, when I finally was getting close to camp, I could smell cocoa. And I paused and looked through the trees. And there, lit by the fire, my daughter, I could see my daughter who had set up the chairs and was handing drinks out to my wife and my son. And I came in and I sat down too. And I, I watched the sparks go up into the stars. And I looked across at my, my daughter, who wasn't so little and was very mature and kind and thoughtful. And, and I realized sometimes it takes a big whack to the head to see your little girl for the young woman she's come to be. Thank you. Yikes, that's a second story where somebody's, um, the main event is falling off the edge of something. <laughs> yeah, we've got a theme. Maybe Irene will change that. Next up is Irene Bouchane. Um, she thinks of herself as one of those people who never ceases to be amazed by life. Um, Having experienced many colorful moments over the years, she has come to expect the unexpected. Her adventures began as early as she can remember, but the ones now emblazoned in her memory are, uh, began on the day that she left high school. Today, Irene lives with her husband, Herb, their dog, Woody, in Henniker, New Hampshire. She is a mother and author, illustrator of the children's book, Celia and the Little Boy, her story tonight is an example of one colorful surprise that led her to an amazing and unexpected adventure. Its title is, wait, do I know you? Come on up. Cambridge, 1969. I was walking down Mass Ave. My boyfriend worked at Cracker Jacks in Harvard Square. I worked at Truk in Harvard Square beneath the Brattle Theater. It was winter, it was cold, and I was moving quickly down Mass Ave when I came across a group of people. But one particular image stopped me. There was a hat a huge fur hat in the middle of the group. And as I looked, I thought, do I? So I walked by the group, and then I backtracked because I thought I knew this person. And I backtracked, and I looked at this person, and I said, 
Now, while I'm standing there, this entourage of like six other people come around me. And suddenly I'm in a group. And I look at the woman and I say, do I know you? And she, I said, what's your name? And she says, Janice. And I went, oh. And as I'm gathering that I'm staring at Janice Joplin, <laughs> I, you know, it was the 60s. And I was so blown away that that was really true that I, I kind of was stunned. And then all of a sudden, one of the group people said, hey, baby, what's going on? <laughs> and I'm like, um, hey, we're hungry. Do you know any place we could go eat? And I'm, I thought, well, yes, I do. Uh, you could go to the worst house down the street, right in the middle of Harvard Square, great restaurant. Um, okay, come on, come on, baby, we're going, to, we're going to eat. And I went, okay. So they sort of swept me up into their whole thing, and we all walked into the worst house in Harvard Square, which was an amazing old deli that's well-known down there. And while I was there, we walked in, and as we're walking in, I thought, this is really happening. And we walked into the restaurant, and I noticed as we were finding a place to sit, this group of now seven or eight people, and the woman with the big hat, I noticed that the staff there was starting to look around. They were looking, and they were, they were doing a number, like, but nobody said anything. They just were so blown away that this was true. So I was thinking, yeah, I am sitting on this side, and you are over there doing what, exactly what I would be doing. So we, we ate, and we had a lot of fun. I actually sat right next to Janice, and for some reason or other, we just hit it off. I think I had become sort of okay with musicians and music and people. It was the 60s. They were everywhere. And I was a very popular, you know, loved to be at the Boston Tea Party all the time, really enjoyed a lot going on there. So there we were. And, I, and so I, Janice and I started chatting, and what we realized is, you know, the first question back in the 60s probably was, what's your sign? And the sign, of course, my sign was Capricorn, and her sign was Capricorn. So we were like, oh, great, we're both Capricorns. And then everybody started drinking beer and all that other stuff. And I don't remember anything else that happened, except I think I invited them to my house. They told me, one of the big things that I found out at dinner, or at lunch, whatever it was, is that they were there because they were putting on a show at Clark University. And they were staying in Harvard Square, and that they were going to be taking off later on in the afternoon for Clark University, and they were going to drive there. And they said, you want to come? I said, sure. So I, 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 said, I was like, OK, yeah, great. So as I was somewhere in that conversation, I said, well, you could come back to our place for a party afterwards. You know, why not? And so um, I was living with my boyfriend at the time, who worked at Cracker Jacks. So they went there where they said, OK, meet, meet us in front of the hotel in, you know, in Harvard Square at 4 o'clock. I said, OK. And, and then I left and ran back to Cracker Jacks and said to my boyfriend, holy cow, I, I just met Janis Joplin, and I'm going to Clark University. But when we get back, prepare for people to be at the, at the house or the apartment, because we're going to have a party. And he's probably like, I don't remember, he's stunned. And so I go home, get ready, and then I, I go back to Harvard Square at 4 o'clock. I meet the group. We're going in a caravan. Janice and Sam, you know that tall guy? I always used to think he was big brother. Anyway, Sam and, and Janice were in one car with two other people, and I was in the other car with the manager and some of the band players and whatever. We drove to Clark, and as soon as we got to Clark University, we went around backstage. And backstage, the Jay Giles band was there because they were the front band, and you know, it was really one of those 
one of those scenes. And, and there was lots going on back there. You know, there was the, the group chatter, and then the, and then the drinking started, and whatever the hell heck anybody, anybody wanted to do back there was happening. And what I noticed, because I sat at Janice's sort of get ready table, was that she started drinking. And I went, oh yeah, right. I mean, I'm not a big drinker, but seeing that Southern Comfort truly was part of her part of her package was, yeah, there, there it is. So we were sitting together, and, the, and it was getting, and the Jay Gals came on, and I invited them to the house afterwards as well. And then uh, they were going to invite Muddy Waters, because he was around somewhere. And it was like, became this whole thing. And I'm, and I'm just like, it's just rolling with it. And um, so Janice gets on stage, and now she's, she's kind of plastered. And it was like, there was this person I really liked, and then there was this person that disappeared on stage. And when she went on stage, she was amazing. I mean, you know, cry baby. I mean, any song she sang was heart-wrenching. And it was just so compelling. But I also knew she was really loaded. And I knew that she was just holding herself together. And so then after the, after the concert was over, we all got in the cars again. We just caravaned back, but this time now we're caravaned back to my place. And I hadn't seen Janice again till we got to my front door, which is now in Huntington, on Huntington Avenue and, you know, whatever, near the hospitals there. And she gets out of the car, everybody gets out of the car, and I lead them up to the apartment. And we get to the, we get up, the, but so now I hear her behind me. And she's, you know, they're rowdy, and they don't care whose house they're going to. <laughs> I could have told them to go anywhere. I could have said, well, you know, we're, we're going anywhere, and they would have, oh, whatever, fine. So now I don't really know them anymore. I want to, but I kind of don't, because we've sort of lost that little synergy thing. And so everybody came up into the apartment, and everyone, when we walked in, the door opens and there is a probably it's it's a an apartment one bedroom a teeny bathroom a kitchen and a living room that's it and i probably you know invited 75 people that don't even know and <laughs> so they all get they come in and while they're inside um, i notice everyone who came looks at us i mean it's again one of those deer in the headlights kind of thing they went and and no one really knew what to do so it's not like I thought, oh, we're going to have a party. It's going to be great. And everyone was like, frozen. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was like, OK, you know, this is, what do I do, introduce them to people? I mean, they don't care. And, uh, and so if they come into the house. The house is now packed. The doorbell is ringing every 30 minutes. It's probably about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning at this point. And what starts to happen is Janice and the tall guy, Sam, they go off into the only other room in the house, which happens to be our bedroom. And she flops on the bed, he flops on the bed, and they're loaded and laughing and rolling around and they're having a heck of a time. And I decide, hmm, how do I, what do I do with all of this? <laughs> so what I started to do was try to socialize with the people that came. Um, and then I started to get this sense that maybe this wasn't going to work. Uh, because now I'm worried about my my apartment. I'm worried about somebody else who might care that now she's walking on my bed with her high heel boots. She's completely plastered. Sam could care less. They're rolling around. People are yelling and shouting. Everyone's having a ball in there. But out here, people are like, huh. Ah! So I finally realized that they didn't care about my place. And that wasn't going to work. So I just finally 
realize, I just stood up and I said, all right, everybody out. Everybody out. And I started walking around, going, out, 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 everybody, everybody out, 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 out. And ultimately, I realized that I kicked Janis Joplin out of my house. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I never got the opportunity to uh, kick Janet Joplin out of the house. But that does remind me of a, a party that I had. I guess I hosted it. My parents. It's high school, and there were about 200, you know, from Nash. All of a sudden, it was out of control, and the next day, it looked really out of control, and yeah, that feeling. Ooh. <laughs> That's quite a claim to fame there. Thank you, Irene. You're welcome. Next up, we have Tim Bassett, an engineer by trade and a storyteller at heart, lives in Greenland, New Hampshire. He is the husband of Nancy and father of TJ and Abby. Tim coached high school basketball at St. Thomas Aquinas in Dover for 20 years. He's an avid runner, biker, and traveler when it goes well. And although Tim has enjoyed his life in the seacoast for 40 years, tonight he'll take us on a journey far away from home, one that required a lot of planning and perseverance to get off the ground. But ultimately, this adventure showed Tim the real big difference that a little bit of kindness can make. Its title is The Passport. Come on up, Tim. So it's a warm August evening, and my wife and I decide that we're going to relax by watching a movie. She stops at Redbox on the way home, picks a movie at random, and ultimately we are, are going to start watching it. And the movie's called The Way. And The Way is really St. James Way over in Spain, the Camino. And it's a spiritual pilgrimage that people take. And the legend has it that St. James was transported from Jerusalem to the north of Spain and buried at the end of St. James Way under the cathedral in Santiago. So this story talks about a father and a son and the son is going to go off on this pilgrimage. He's a little free spirit. He's looking for himself. Father's conservative, doesn't understand why. The movie starts and quickly evolves to where the son is off on the pilgrimage and three days into his pilgrimage he dies on the way. And the father gets that phone call. And he's got to go recover his son's body over in Spain. He gets over there and is going to transport the body home. And he makes a decision when he arrives in Spain that he will take the pilgrimage in his son's memory. Well, we're watching this, and that resonates with me immediately. And I look and turn to my wife, and I say, I need to do that pilgrimage. And she looks right back at me and immediately says, yes, you do. <laughs> and it resonated with me 
because my son, when he was 12 years old, passed away from cancer. And I promised that I would do those things a father would do with his son. And I have. I've gone off and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. I've run the Boston Marathon. I've entered triathlons. And everywhere along there, I have taken my son with me. And if you would indulge me, I will take my son with me tonight on this journey. So I start planning the trip. A year, a year's worth of planning. And we're going to rough it. I'm going with a friend of mine, and we're going to sacrifice and make this pilgrimage meaningful. We're going to stay in hostels. We're going to take minimal money, no electronics. Now, while you're sitting in your home deciding all this, those seem like very good decisions. <laughs> I would come to regret some of those decisions as I started this trip. So we go off, we make that, and, and one of the things I'm really leery of is I check my passport, and my passport will be eight months away from expiration when the trip finishes. And they always tell you, within six months, get a new passport. I'm going to get a new passport. I send it off. It takes six to eight weeks to get that passport back. I get the passport back. I do it well early. Uh, I have the passport three months before I'm gone. I get it back, and the picture looks odd. Looks a little orange. Doesn't look like me. I tell my wife, and she says, stop worrying, will you please? you got to go on this trip. So I don't think about it again. Everything's planned, and now the trip is coming. My wife drives me to CNJ, and I am filled with anticipation and excitement. I give her a kiss goodbye. I top onto CNJ, and I am filled with anxiety and fear. Because the truth be told, I'm a guy that's glass is half empty. And the glass is cracked. <laughs> and it's filled with acid. So I know something's going to happen. I know. I'm just waiting. So get to the airport. I've got a uh, 2.30 flight. Get to the airport around uh, 12 o'clock. i got plenty of time. I get in line at United Airlines. I've got my, uh, my backpack in a bag. I've got another bag because we're going to do some touring around after the pilgrimage. And um, I get up to the counter and I hand my uh, passport to the ticket agent. That's not good, right? Right when he starts scratching the picture. That's not good. And he says, I'll be right with you. I've got to go get my manager. Manager comes back, takes the passport, does the same thing, scratches the picture. And basically they tell me, we think it's a fake passport. We're not going to let you on the flight. Have a good day. Next. And I'm standing there in total dismay. I don't know what I'm going to do because six months earlier, I decided minimal money, no electronics. I don't have a phone. I've got $40 in my wallet and two bags. And what am I going to do? And clearly the ticket agent must have seen the look of dread on my face. And he stepped aside and he took the phone and he lifted it up onto the counter and said, I don't know what you're going to do but you can make a call. Dial 99, you get an outside line. So I thought to myself very quickly, boy. So I called my wife. 
called her and I explained it to her and she says, hold on, let me make some calls. I'll call the Boston passport office. I'll see what I can do. So I hang up and I'm standing there because I want to use the phone again and trying to make no commotion. And um, I wait what seems like a lifetime. My wife said it was three minutes. So I called her right back and she said, I haven't had a chance to call anybody. What, what do you want me to do? And my wife, who's very quick on her feet, says, listen, just take a cab over the passport office. In between now and when you get there, I will have called and talked to somebody. They'll know you're coming. Just go. So I go down, hop in a cab, $20 cab ride from Logan to the passport office. Now I'm down to 20 bucks. And I, I, I go and um, I make my way up into the passport office and it's kind of, they got a glass booth and you slide. So I slide my passport under and I say, I, I need some help. They've, they've rejected my passport. I, I need to get on a flight. I'm going on a pilgrimage. And the woman takes the passport and goes, and scratches the picture. <laughs> Is this standard operating procedure for any passport? And then what do you think she said? I got to go get my manager. Deja vu all over again. So she goes and gets the manager. The manager comes, scratches the picture. And they said, they, they sent this to you by accident. There's no way they should have sent this passport to you. It, it won't pass muster at any airport, anywhere. You need a new passport. That's why I'm here. And she says, normally we'd be able to help you. But five minutes ago, our computer system went down. You got to be kidding me, right? This is, uh, this, I, I, I can't believe this. So, so I say, I don't know what I'm going to do. I give her the same line. I'm on a pilgrimage. You got to help me. What am I going to do? She says, now imagine this. She says, you got to go to another passport office. The closest one is Portsmouth. in Portsmouth. <laughs> I live five minutes from there. I, so. I said, how am I going to get to Portsmouth? It's, 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 it's now, it's now 115, 120. My flight was at 230. That, that flight's gone. What am I going to do? I need to call my wife again. Is there any way I could call my wife? The woman reaches in her pocket, the manager, and slides her cell phone out through the window and says, you can use my phone. I call my wife. My wife very quick on her feet says, okay, <sighs> go back to CNJ and head back up to Portsmouth. Call me when you get over to the airport. I'm going to go back to the airport. The manager, I give her back the phone. She says, hey, you've got to get up to Portsmouth by 4 o'clock. The passport office closes. <laughs> Holy crap, okay? I don't know how I'm going to do this. But she says, because I'm, I'm obviously looking frantic. She says, I'm going to call the Portsmouth Passport Office, so they're expecting you. Do you have a number which they can contact you with? And the only number I could think of was my wife's cell phone. And I'm thinking to myself, she would tell me anything to get out of this passport office right now because she thinks I'm going to snap. She's not going to call that Portsmouth Passport Office. I take my last 20 bucks, take a cab back to the airport, wait for C&J bus. I... I don't have any money. How am I going to get on C&J? Well, C&J will take you if you give them a form of identification. What's the form of identification I have? <laughs> the guy didn't scratch the passport, though. 
He just took it. He accepted it. I could get on CNJ with my passport. So I get on CNJ. It's a Friday afternoon, uh, 2 o'clock, hours ride. My wife has the great idea when I call her from the airport. I'll meet you in Newburyport. It'll be quicker for you to get off there, and we'll drive from there up to Portsmouth. She's thinking, because the woman at the passport office mentioned to me, you're going to need photos if you think you can get a passport. So I'm going to have to take photos somewhere. Get on the bus, normally an hour's ride, gridlock. <laughs> on a Friday afternoon, it takes 90 minutes to get to Newburyport. It's now 3.30. Get out. My wife is parked where the CNJ bus is supposed to park. <laughs> she wants me to know where she is. I get right out. She's already paid for my ticket. I hop in the car. She's already done the legwork of finding where I can get photos. There's a photo place a half a mile away at the AAA. Run down. Get the photos. We're in the, we're in the car back on the highway, and we are probably driving faster than we should be. We go through the toll booth. And it's 4 o'clock. It's over. My glass is half empty. I am pissing and moaning in the car. Never going to happen. All this planning for naught. So get through the toll booth. Her phone rings. Hello? Yes, this is the manager at the Portsmouth Passport Office. Is this Timothy Bassett? We're waiting for you. you got to be kidding me. So I, I think quickly and say, oh, I'm just pulling into peas. Not so. I'm still on the highway, but I wanted them to wait. <laughs> so it's another 12 minutes, I still remember, 12 minutes to get up the highway and into peas. Get to the passport office, 4.15. I walk up to the door. The security guard opens the door and says, we've been waiting for you. There's a security guard, passport processor, a manager, and a clerk. The clerk sits there, and he fills out the whole passport information for me. I just have to talk to him. Do all that. It takes about 15 minutes. It's now 4.30. Get it? And the passport manager says, hey, listen, we're going to process this. Normally, this takes three days. I can't make any guarantees. Once again, the trip's gone. Three days, uh, my friend, we had already made the plans. If you don't see me on the plane, you just keep going. We had already made that pack. We're not going to wait for one another. So I go home. I'm moaning and groaning. My wife's out in the kitchen on the computer. I'm sitting there feeling bad for myself. And um, 5.15, the phone rings. It's the manager of the passport center saying my passport's ready. No. Yes, 5.15, 45 minutes later, I have a new passport. This still can happen. Now, now I'm mobilizing. Now I'm happy. <laughs> so I yell to my wife, we got to get a flight. I hear, click. She goes, done. Get your bags. We're in the car. <laughs> she had been searching flights this whole time while I was in there feeling bad for myself. Now, at this point... It, I realized all this help she was giving me the whole day maybe wasn't help. She needed to get rid of me on this trip. Okay, well, I thought it was help up until that point. When she hit that key and I had tickets seven seconds later, she was getting rid of me. Go get the passport. 
She drives me to the airport. I get on the flight. And I have not been able to contact my friend during this whole time. He just knows I'm not on the flight with him. We were supposed to meet in New York and fly to Madrid. Somehow my wife gets a message to him in Spain that I'll be late. I walk off the plane. He's standing there waiting for me. Four hours difference from when I was supposed to arrive originally and where I got, and he's waiting for me. And we were able to go off and have this experience of a lifetime. And St. James Way is a pilgrimage where you walk and you think and you rest and you walk some more and you contemplate some more. And the opportunity I had on those first few days of the pilgrimage was to think about a ticket agent who saw a man in distress and offered his phone. A passport manager who saw a man in need and sent her cell phone out and took the extra step at calling the manager up in Portsmouth. And four people on a summer's weekend that stayed after their shift so that one man could go have the experience of a lifetime. Each one of those little acts of kindness put me in a position to have that experience. So whenever you get a chance to do something little for someone else, take that chance. Thank you. Wow, Tim. That was oh, an adventure. I feel like I have to uh, calm down a little before introducing Debbie. Thank you. Um, Debbie Kane, a resident of Exeter, New Hampshire, is a copywriter, editor, and blogger who writes about art, culture, travel, education, and home and design. A native New Yorker who grew up in Texas, among Debbie's proudest achievements are two daughters, Abby and Emily, and recognizing that there's humor in everything, and usually a great story, too. Tonight, Debbie will tell us about a December evening in Boston that started out one way, but ended up another, thanks to the kindness of strangers. Good, more kindness. Her story is titled, Kindness and the Karma of a Great Pair of Shoes. Come on up, Debbie. Thanks. So it's a cold Wednesday in December, and I'm standing in a downtown Boston coffee shop. And I look at the barista, and I, I order a vanilla latte. And then I scoot down the line with my bag to get my wallet. And I rifle through my bag, and I have two lipsticks, a couple pens, a notebook, a plastic bag containing a pair of shoes, about 20 Kleenex, but no wallet. So the reason I'm in Boston is because I'm going to this networking event for some clients of mine. And you all probably know what networking events are. I hate them. Um, they make me very uncomfortable. So I tend to plan. So I plan what I'm going to say, who I'm going to talk to, and most importantly, what I'm going to wear. Because I feel like if you're wearing something you feel good about, you're going to do well. 
And I also make sure I wear a great pair of shoes because as women know, it's all about the shoes. <laughs> so the day of the event, I take my drive to Newburyport, I park my car and I take the commuter train into North Station. And as I'm coming out, you know it's rush hour and it's cold and I re reach into my bag and I pull out my hat and my gloves and I figure, you know, I've got about an hour to kill. I think I'll go get a cup of coffee. So I find this coffee shop, and actually that's how I'm in this coffee shop, looking at this barista saying, I don't have my wallet. And the woman next to me says, it's okay, I've got your cup of coffee. And I'm like, thank you so much. And then the barista looks at me and she says, what can I do to help? And I think, I don't know what you can do, because I realized that when I had reached into my bag for my gloves and my hat, I must have pulled my wallet out by accident. So I'm thinking with a sinking feeling, that's it, I'm never going to see this again. So I take my coffee and I go to sit down and I think I'm going to call my husband. And I look around for the Wi-Fi password and it's interesting because it's a biblical chapter, John 414, and I'm like, what's that? And I'm like, well, well, who cares? So I call my husband and he's really good about things like this. He's very calm because I basically say, Eric, it's Debbie. I think I lost my wallet. And he says, it's okay. Where were you last when you had it? And I think, if I knew that, I wouldn't have lost my wallet. So we chat, and then my phone buzzes, and I look down, and it's a text, and it says, hi, this is Kelly. I just want to let you know that I found your wallet, but I had to catch a train to Woburn, so I can either meet you later tonight or, and give it back to you, or uh, we can, I can um, bring it back to Boston on Friday when I'm back in town. And I'm like, oh my god. So I tell my husband, I'll call you back. And I text Kelly and I go, oh my gosh, I am so excited you found my wallet. Yes, I will come and get it tonight. And then I'm thinking, wait a minute, you're in Woburn, my car is in Newburyport, that's like a 30 minute difference, and my train ticket to Newburyport is in my wallet. <laughs> so while I'm mulling over what I'm gonna do, my husband texts and he says, you know, what's going on? And I say to him, you know, how am I gonna get to Woburn? He's like, Uber, take an Uber to Woburn. And I'm like, Duh, you know, I've had this app on my phone, I never use it. So I text Kelly and I say, okay, I will book an Uber, I'm going, I'm in town for this networking event, so I can meet you at 7.30. She says, great, I'll meet you in Linfield, at the market at Linfield, the shopping center. So I hang up with her, I book the Uber, and I text Eric and I say, meet me in Newburyport, or meet me in Linfield at 7.30. So at this point, I can't wait to go to this networking event because it's an open bar, it's paid for, and I need a drink. <laughs> so the event is in a high rise in the back bay, and I go in, and the first thing I see is a security guard, and I ask the security guard, you know, where is the ladies' room? And uh, so I go into the ladies' room, and um, I pull out my pair of shoes, I put on my great pair of shoes, I stand in front of the mirror, and I do my power pose, and I'm ready to go. So I come out of the bathroom and I see the security guard again and she goes, that is a great pair of shoes. And I'm like, yeah, I know, thanks. And she gives me a thumbs up, I give her a thumbs up and I go upstairs. And my first stop is the bar. I get a big glass of wine, I drink about half of it. And then I look around and I introduce myself to this nice gentleman in the insurance industry. And we, I, we chat and I tell him, you won't believe what happened to me tonight. You know, I lost my wallet. But I'm going to, later on tonight to meet the woman who found it, who's going to give it back to me. And the guy is looking at me like, what are you, nuts? You know, how do you know this woman is going to, like, give you back your wallet? And I'm like, I don't know. I just have a good feeling about it. 
So I then introduce myself to somebody else, and this gentleman and I both agree that networking events are kind of awkward. But he says to me, you know, you have the great, the best line of anyone tonight to meet someone. He said, you can just go up to a group and say, hey, who else here tonight lost their wallet? And I laugh, and he laughs, and then he introduces me to his coworkers, and I tell all of them the whole story, and before I know it, it's time to go downstairs and get my Uber. And as I'm leaving, everybody's saying, oh, you know, it was great to meet you. Um, good luck getting your wallet. And as I leave, I think, you know, this evening isn't turning out to be so bad after all. So I go downstairs. My Uber driver is waiting. He looks like he's about 16. <laughs> and I get in the car, and we head off. And I say to him, hey, you know, how's it going? How's your evening? And he goes, oh, it's going great. How's yours? I said, well, you won't believe what happened to me. I lost my wallet. And the reason I'm in the Uber tonight is to go meet the woman who has found it and to give it back to me. And I have the kids looking in the rearview mirror, and I can tell he's thinking, whatever. And so I you know, decide to sit back and relax and enjoy the drive. And before I know it, we're on 128, and we're getting off the highway. And I notice we pass the city limit sign for the city of Lynn. And I'm thinking, Lynn? And I'm like, wait a minute. And I'm trying really hard not to think about you know, all those crazy stories you hear about Uber drivers. And I say to the driver, you know, I think we're going the wrong way. We need to be going to Linfield, not Lynn. He goes, no, 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 this is right. I have the address right here. And we pull up in front of a package store that says the Linfield Marketplace. And I'm like, no, this isn't right. And so I lean over and I show the guy the right address. And he says, he shows me what the Uber app said. And I realized that in my anxiety, instead of typing, when I ordered the Uber, instead of typing the market at Linfield, I typed in the Linfield Marketplace. So I apologized. I said, no, I need to go to this other place. He said, OK. We did a U-turn. We headed back to Linfield. Five minutes later, we pull up in front of the restaurant where I'm supposed to meet Kelly. He lets me out, and he says, well, good luck. I hope you get your wallet back. And I said, thank you. So I go into the restaurant, and a few minutes later, Kelly comes back or comes in. And I know it's her because she has my wallet in one hand, and she's holding her 8-year-old daughter's hand um, in the other. And uh, I go up. I give her a big hug. Um, and she tells me that she found my wallet on Causeway Street in front of North Station, and that the reason she was able to text me was because I had a business card in my wallet, and she knew to pull it out. And, um, you know, and I can't believe my luck. And she asked me, you know, what I do for a living, and I say, well, I'm a freelance writer. And she said, well, that's funny. You know, I work for the Boston Globe. And I think, well, that's really odd, you know, that of all the people to find my wallet, it would be somebody in the same industry as me. So we chat a little while longer, and then she has to leave and take her daughter home. And so we say goodbye. I give her another hug. I feel like crying because it's pretty emotional. And uh, then my husband shows up, and I get in the car. We go to Newburyport. We grab my car. The evening is over. And, uh, and everything was still in my wallet intact. So the next morning, I'm standing in my kitchen with my cup of coffee, and I'm wondering, you know, what was that coffee shop I was in? So I do a Google search, and it turns out that it's a community-owned coffee shop called The Well. Um, it has two locations in Boston, and it's called The Well because in the Bible, Jesus, um, in the Bible, The Well was a place for townspeople to gather and share stories and um, also get water and nourishment. 
And the biblical phrase that they use as their Wi-Fi password is the story of Jesus coming to the well and sharing um, goodwill with a woman at the well and in turn health, hoping she would share it with the community. And so I was thinking about this and I thought, well, you know, I'm not especially religious, but um, I do think that some things happen for a reason. And what really struck me about that whole evening was just how kind everybody was to me. And, um, and I don't know why it felt so unexpected, but it did. But maybe, just maybe, the whole evening went well because of the karma of a great pair of shoes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you to all of tonight's wonderful storytellers. We're so glad to hear your stories. And thanks to our studio audience. Coming up next, we will hear an interview of one of tonight's storytellers. But first, a few other things I'd like to tell you. Our next True Tales Live will be Tuesday, February 25th, with the theme of Acting for Justice. We still have space for more storytellers, actually, for all of our 2020 shows. Please email us at truetaleslive1 at gmail.com to sign up. If you want to tell a story on our show, whether you are a newcomer or not, um, we'd love to have you at one of our workshops. We'll help you with your piece, get you some feedback, help you feel good about your story. Um, they are all held here at PPMTV 280 Marcy Street in Portsmouth on the first Tuesday of most months from 7.30 to 9. And they are free and open to everyone. And the next one is February 4th. You can watch us on Comcast Channel 98 Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. and anytime on YouTube. You can go to our website, which is truetaleslivenh.org, to easily access all of those options. Well, those two and more. Let's thank some of those who make our show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, Chad Cordner, and Sam Adams. Hi, again, I'm Amy Antonucci, and until our next True Tales Live show, on behalf of all of us, thank you for being here. And now David Frainer will interview John Tilley, 